Good morning, everybody. This is Claudia Shambon. I'm your host of Ask a Leader for the April 17, 2018 edition. Happy tax day. I hope everybody's got it all in there. It's gonna your tax forms are and all are gonna look a lot different next year thanks to that December steamrolling of the Tax Reform Act. I'm going to keep bringing that act up when I interview congressional candidates. Today's show, I'm going to play a recording I did. It's still fresh, folks. Not that far off the shelf. With Katie Porter, UCI law professor. I had another candidate intended for the second half. He has a family emergency, and I will schedule him after my two candidates booked next week. Then in the second half, very generously, Michael Yasa has stepped up and he's going to talk about the International Conference on Learning and Memory featuring the world's leading brain scientists. It's going to be starting tomorrow, go through the 22nd at the fine Huntington Beach Hotel. We'll give you all those details after a short station break when we hear from Miss Katie Porter. Welcome back to the show. My guest for this segment is Catherine Katie Porter, UCI law professor running for Congress in California's 45th district. This interview is a part of a series of interviews I'm conducting with congressional candidates throughout Orange County. Katie Porter specializes in commercial and consumer law, including bankruptcy, mortgage foreclosure, and credit cards. Her research has been published in journals including the Texas Law Review, the Georgetown Law Review, the American Bankruptcy Law Journal, and the Cornell Law Review. Prior to her appointment at UCI, Ms. Porter was on the faculty at the University of Iowa College of Law and a visiting professor at the law schools at Harvard, UC Berkeley, University of Illinois, and University of Nevada, Las Vegas. She practiced bankruptcy law in Portland, Oregon, and clerked for the Honorable Richard Arnold of the, 80th, of the 8th Circuit Court. Moreover, Ms. Porter is a principal investigator in the 2007 Consumer Bankruptcy Project, a fellow of the Bankruptcy Data Project at Harvard, and a member of the World Bank Insolvency and Creditor-Debtor Regimes Task Force Working Group on Natural Persons Insolvency. Katie Porter completed her Bachelor of Arts in American Studies at Yale University and her JD from Harvard Law School. She lives in Irvine and is raising three children. She joins me in studio. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Katie Porter. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're going to keep all these congressional candidate interviews topical and about policy and offer listeners an opportunity to examine all you candidates over an informal yet a, a probing setting. First, is this the first electoral office that you've sought in your career? Yes, this is my first run for office. So I'm really thrilled with how it's going and the tremendous support that we're seeing from families across the 45th district. So I'm interested, why did you choose a congressional office to start your electoral bid with? 
I've spent my whole career working on the issues that are facing middle-class families. Uh, I've done a lot of work on consumer protection, um, particularly on affordable housing, mortgage foreclosure, and the way that the big banks cheat a lot of families and get away with breaking the law. So when Donald Trump was elected, I was obviously sad um, and worried about the direction our country was going to head. But I also knew that right here in our own backyard in Irvine in the 45th District, that our representative, Mimi Walters, was going to fail to represent us, that she was not going to fight for families, which is what I've spent my career doing. Had you considered other options in elective office? I have um, worked for two and a half years for our then Attorney General, Kamala Harris. We'll talk about her in a a minute. So, well, with with that, as I say, with the work that you did on your appointment by then California Attorney General Kamala Kamala Harris, which your campaign emphasizes to a considerable degree, you are the one to tell us, why did the state not go after current U.S. Secretary of Treasury Steve Mnuchin for his foreclosure practices while he was running California-based IndyMac, then, now, then later named One West Bank? So my role for then Attorney General Kamala Harris was following up on the National Mortgage Settlement and the California Agreement in which she obtained billions of dollars from the banks to help homeowners. And so his specifically. Yeah. So he was not part of that deal. And I was not an employee of the DOJ. One of the things I'm most proud of is that I served as an independent monitor. So I was appointed by Attorney General um, Harris. But my work was um, to of my own accord. We did it right here at UC Irvine. I didn't work at her direction. I worked independently to hold the banks who signed the deal accountable. So I wasn't a prosecutor. I wasn't an investigator. What I was was accountable to the people of California for making sure that if they had questions or they thought the banks were breaking the law, that I was on the ground there to fight for them. Okay. Well, I've always wanted, I've been sort of, that's been a little festering since uh, it's not only in what did happen, but in how he's comporting himself there on the cabinet now. Well, let's, we've got lots to cover. Thinking now about the tech sector, opportunities and liabilities, what, Katie Porter, is your takeaway from the Facebook CEO's testimony before Congress this week? I've spent my whole career working on consumer protection issues and have written a textbook on consumer law that contains significant coverage about privacy and big data. These are some of the emerging legal issues that I'm excited that we're educating our students on at UC Irvine in the classes that I teach here. And I think it's really important that Congress ask the hard questions that they did of Mr. Zuckerberg. I hope they continue to ask hard questions, not only about Facebook, but about the other companies that were involved, including Cambridge Analytica, who Mimi Walters, my opponent, paid over $20,000 to last election cycle. Um, And so I think consumer protection, including data privacy, are huge issues that are emerging. And I'm glad to see our leaders in Congress, um, like folks like Kamala Harris, taking a real active role in questioning Mr. Zuckerberg on what happened and what he's going to do to prevent it next time. Well, Katie Porter, does it seem like the horse has run the heck out of the barn, though, with this, that that there is so much... Uh, sophistication and artificial intelligence that, I mean, we all heard Mark Zuckerberg say, well, we we asked Cambridge Analytica to, you know, stop doing it, but I mean, like he was sort of putting trust in various players to to rein it in, but there there is such sophistication underway, uh, way ahead of even the grasp of the people that were 
asking the questions in Congress this week. Is, is the horse out of the barn and uh, running in the middle of the uh, Nevada desert, or can we bring it back? So for me, when I listen to you talk about this, I'm reminded of exactly what I heard um, from yes. Congress people when we were going through the foreclosure crisis. And it was, oh, these financial instruments are too complicated, and these collateralized mortgage obligations, and these debt instruments, and these um, debt swaps. And so we just can't really hold the banks accountable because this is too complex. But what I did in my work is when you really boiled it down, cheating's cheating, and it's not that hard to see. Failing to tell the truth to your customers, which is what Facebook did, is just plain and simple wrong. And so I do think Congress needs to continue to um, develop technical expertise. I think it's an important part of our economy that we need to be regulating um, and asking good questions about the right level of protection. But at bottom, I don't buy the excuse that anybody or anything is so complicated that we can't expect people to act fairly in the marketplace. So what is Congress's role to regulate social media platforms and the reach of Facebook with all the applications that it owns and that it has a sort of third-party relationship with? What does Congress do? Because that, that extent to which any regulation would take place was all over the map on both of the days. One of the things I think I would really bring to Congress is expertise on exactly what those laws are that could be used to bring to bear on a situation like Facebook. So our Federal Trade Commission has a long-standing law called the um, Unfair Trade Practices Act, and it's broadly applicable to those who engage in commerce, um, which is certainly what Facebook is doing um, in terms of selling ads and marketing things to people. And so that law really is um, broad in its nature, unfair and deceptive practices, because it can be designed to be used in situations like this where there's new and emerging technology and the law hasn't quite caught up. But that's a law and the people who serve on the Federal Trade Commission should be asking hard questions about what Facebook is doing as well. But I, I guess I, my skepticism persists and there is such sophisticated in the development of these applications. And there's not really, is there, a, can we be assured that we really understand the reach of that? I mean, it's so beyond monitoring in so many different ways. I think one of the things that we see is that this is why it's important to maintain and trust those who do have expertise in the federal government. So we've seen this over and over again with the Trump administration pushing out um, people at the Environmental Protection Agency, pushing out people um, at the State Department who do have that kind of high-level expertise. So we do have folks at the Federal Trade Commission and at the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau who understand big data, who have worked for credit card companies, who have worked for data gathering companies. Companies. And those those people are there. The question is, is the Trump administration going to let those experienced, knowledgeable professionals do their job in asking the hard questions of Facebook and understanding what happened and coming up with regulations and protections to protect us from it happening again? So for those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Katie Porter, UCI Law School professor and congressional candidate in California's 45th district, which includes Irvine, among other central Orange County cities. We're talking about tech, regulation of tech, and the recent hearings before Congress with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. So you're bringing up consumer financial protection. That's sort of the central aspect of the law that you're teaching here and you've been advocating for. So I want to bite the big bite off here with you about the Dodd-Frank Act. It just keeps unraveling and we have this little duplicative appointment. We've got Mulvaney with OM, the Office of Management and Budget, and with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. So 
what does Congress have to, what's the role Congress has to address the, the aspect of administering that bureau as it has now been codified Although we, I understand it's it's just being unraveled. So what what is the role you start on day one, as they always say, twenty nineteen January? What can Congress do with what the executive office has been doing to undermine that bureau? Yes. Yeah, so Dot Frank, the Dot Frank Act, which was enacted in the wake of the foreclosure crisis and um, the kind of global economic recession, was designed to make sure that we have appropriate protections in place to protect our economy. And that's exactly what the Consumer Protection Bureau does. It fights for all of us. It's returned over twelve billion dollars. Has it surprised you how it's been performing? I expected it to perform really well. I thought it was a fabulous idea. We've seen it work on the ground. I've seen it with my own eyes here in California. Families who were cheated by student lenders or credit card companies, a lot of those folks reach out to me because of my expertise here at the law school, and I direct them to file a complaint with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and they get results. Um, And that part of the bureau is still up and running. Um, I think what's going on with Mick Mulvaney is outrageous. Essentially, he's not running the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. He's running it into the ground, attempting to give it a zero budget. Um, I think there is authority for Congress to hold him and Donald Trump accountable for that. Um, it's an act of Congress that created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and there's not it should not be permissible for a president to undo that act of Congress. But not permissible. But well, how do you operationalize reigning that executive branch discretion with undermining that bureau? What what do you do in the beginning of January 2019? I think you start by having a really meaningful hearing where you ask some hard questions about what those folks have been doing. So if we are if we have a Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and those people are being told to come to work and not work, that's a problem. Um, and so I think you start by asking the kind of tough questions that we've seen my endorsers like Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris ask. Um, and, and so I think you hold them accountable. And if, they're, if Mick Mulvaney and the Trump administration isn't going to let the CFPB do its job, I think that's when you can enact a law in Congress that narrows the executive's authority in this regard. So when you're campaigning in the 45th, to what extent do the constituents, and I say constituent, I mean, I'm including everybody, that we've got a lot of foreign-born, we've got a lot of naturalized, we've got U.S. citizens all over. So to what extent do the people that you're approaching, do they understand what this institution, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, is and what it can be doing and should be doing? Because it's a relatively new agency, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is not necessarily as well known as, um, for example, it's something... It's kind of a mouthful, too. I it mean, is it's a kind mouthful. Of hard. There's not a shorthand for it. Yeah, Elizabeth, the Bureau. Elizabeth yeah. Warren calls it the Consumer Agency, Yeah, okay. um, which I think and is a good a, shorthand. Right, yeah. So a lot of people are not as familiar with this consumer agency as they are, for instance, with the Department of Defense or the Environmental Protection Agency. Agency. What I do see across the 45th district when I talk to families is there is nobody out there, Democrat, Republican, young, old, living in Irvine, living in Cota de Casa, there is nobody out there who thinks that Wall Street banks should get to break the law and get away with it. Everybody thinks that Wall Street banks, just like the rest of us, should have to play fair and follow the rules. Nobody likes to be cheated. And when people understand that that consumer agency has one purpose and one purpose only, which is, is to go 
go after those who are breaking the law and getting away with it, taking our hard-earned money out of our pockets with wrongful, fraudulent action. People strongly support that mission across the board, across partisan lines. Cheating isn't a nonpartisan issue. Isn't a partisan issue. I, I understand that, but do they do they understand the bureau? Are are some of your interactions with constituents about what this bureau's really been uh, enabled to do and has? A record. There's a. It has a track record now of what two and a half, three years. Yeah, the bureau. Um, I think people understand that they remember the foreclosure crisis here. It hit oh, California yeah. very hard. It hit Orange County very hard, and a lot of families are still reeling from that. Um, still dealing with the fact that their home is um, maybe they owe more on those mortgage loans than their house is worth, or that the retirement account took a huge hit from the foreclosure crisis. And so I think we talk a lot about what happened then. That it's the big banks were allowed to break the law and get away with it. That those are a powerful special interest. I talk about why I'm not taking money in my campaign from Goldman Sachs and the big banks. It's a big point of differentiation between me and my primary competitors. So also part of consumer protection are the payday loan. We all, we got really close to securing the terms that those, I mean, I don't know if people understand that that's up, you can get a 200% interest rate on that would be a bargain payday loan i've seen them go easily beyond a thousand percent a thousand percent by the so we got close so what would you do day ish one in 2019 january to deal with making for better terms for people who don't have that many options with their banking and they're they have to resort to some short-term loans like the payday ones what would you do about that Payday loans come from two problems, and I think we need to be tackling both of them in Congress. One of the problems is the lack of jobs that pay a living wage. And so if people are being hit by unaffordable health care premiums and out-of-pocket bills, they can't afford their housing, um, we have very high housing costs here, those are the, they're making $10 or $9 um, an hour, um, and they can't make ends meet. That's what drives people to payday loans. So one of the steps is making sure that we're um, providing for for Medicare for all for people, so they're not facing those medical bill shocks. That's a lot of one of the reasons that drives people to payday lenders is that they've had an unexpected medical emergency. And even with insurance, it can be thousands and thousands of dollars out of pocket or for deductible or copays. And so that's one of the issues. The second issue is tackling on whether or not when people have a shortage, when they have that unexpected bill, do we think it's fair for them to have to pay a thousand percent interest to get help? And there's been a real effort here in California. California and with a lot of the consumer advocates, some of the credit unions, some of the financial technology companies to come up with more affordable short-term loan alternatives. And so there are those products out there. It's just a matter of holding those who want to cheat people accountable and making space in the marketplace for those more fair products for people who do need a short-term loan. So it's a, a powerful lobby that is the, uh, maintaining the status quo with the payday loan. So. Were we to see a change in legislation, it's going to mean a completely different demographic in the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate. I think it's going to mean um, a set of people who, regardless of their backgrounds, it's going to mean a set of people that has the courage to stand up to powerful financial interests and the courage to say, that's hard. This is wrong. It's hard. They're a well-heeled machine. I've done it before. I took on Wells Fargo. I took on Bank of America here when I was fighting for families in Orange County. And trust me, they always had some excuse why they couldn't keep that homeowner in their home or why that 
oops, they're sorry they misinformed that person or lost their paperwork. And these banks are full of excuses. And we see when they go to Congress, that's what they have to offer. And our job in Congress is to make them offer solutions to the very problems that they're creating in our marketplace. And I know just hearing from a, 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 a public radio partner last week about students that thought by their offering their service in the teaching profession in targeted perhaps urban I think schools systems that they followed up on every single piece of their loan terms but they still found out that their uh, interest rates were not going to be retired and so I mean the whole contractual arrangement around that was for not and they're that I mean they felt like well at least they've got to at least pay down some of that interest so that it doesn't balloon on them but it's sort of there there's so many complexities that so it takes some financial wizardry to just to understand how to beat this. And I want to be clear, that complexity isn't a coincidence. Yeah. That complexity is what the financial institutions use to trip people up. It's not an accident. It's part of their business model. We saw it with the mortgage crisis. We're seeing it with student loans. We've seen it with so many different, with Facebook and their user agreement. Um, they create that complexity. And then when consumers aren't able to wade through it all, they try to literally blame the victim. For those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. I'm Claudia Shambaugh, your host, and my guest is Katie Porter, UCI Law School professor and congressional candidate in California's 45th District, which includes the city of Irvine, where KUCI is located, and other uh, Orange County cities. And this is a reminder, everybody, that June 5th is the primary, and it's such an important day because in California, the top two vote-getters advance to the general regardless of party. Not everybody's passing that quiz yet, so I'm, I'm going to harp on that until I find out everybody's telling me, green light, they're, they're ready to vote. So, And we got a bit of a bonus with the, the state codifying that it's you have to opt out when you get your driver's license now to opt out of your voting registration. Well, let's finish the, spend the remainder of this interview on the, I call it the 800 billion ton, not the 800-pound gorilla, the Tax Overhaul Act. Uh, what's your approach to representing the 45th on this one? The 45th district is going to get hammered from both sides by this terrible vote that Mimi Walters took to support that tax plan um, of Donald Trump. Um, we're going to get hit on two sides in this way. On the one front, our own taxes are going to go up um, next year because that tax bill eliminates the ability for families here in the 45th district to deduct state and local income taxes. And so a lot of families are going to see a financial shock come tax time next year. And it's going to be a financial shock that a lot of people are not going to be ready for and not going to have the money for. On the other hand, this tax bill also hits Orange County families by blowing up our deficit. So to the extent that Orange County uh, people think about themselves as being fiscally responsible, about understanding the importance of making investments and uh, fitting things onto the bottom line, this is a terrible tax bill because it's going to push the generation, push the costs of this tax bill onto the next generation, make it even harder for our children and grandchildren than it needs to be. And so this is a terrible tax bill in both directions. Well, and... We're going to see some complications coming out of the Affordable Care Act also being unraveled and the the support of the, the federal government in propping up the California, this contributing to the California plan. So I, I, how do you see, what are the remedies 
congressionally speaking, starting again in January 2019 to help out. The, there were winners and losers. It was never so blatant as it was with this tax overall act, overhaul act. So California is going to be running deficits practically in every service sector of the statewide budget. So what do you how are you going to take that, address that, take it up? I think this one's pretty straightforward. We have to reverse that tax bill. And how do you reverse one? We win. So we're going to send enough people to Congress in January 2019 that we're going to have the votes to come up with a tax plan that ensures that every corporation, no matter how big, no matter how poor, powerful, no matter how fancy of lawyers they can afford, has to pay its fair share. And when we reverse this tax bill and pass a more fiscally responsible tax plan that doesn't single out families here in California and in the 45th district for punitive treatment. Um, it's going to take a new tax plan and it's going to take leaders with both the knowledge of the law and budget and commercial issues and also with the courage to stand up to those powerful corporations. Well, I'm really happy to have this opportunity to get the coverage on all of our candidates. We've never, it's an unprecedented number of candidates that are running. I'll give you just one opportunity to, to sum up your candidacy as I allow you to conclude the interview. Yeah, I'm running to represent the families of the 45th District, and I've spent my whole career fighting to help families, standing up to the big banks and winning, taking on powerful special interests. And so for me, this campaign is about taking my fight for middle-class families to Washington, keeping, continuing to do what I've been doing my whole career, um, and really following the leadership of our state, of our U.S. Senator Kamala Harris, um, in terms of standing up for Californians in Congress. We need more powerful voices on the side of, of families, not special interests. So, for all of you that are listening, there are ample opportunities to hear all of the candidates. There are forums put on by the official parties, by new groups that have formed because of their concern about where national leadership is taking everybody. So uh, there, if you want to hear more from this candidate and others, just stay tuned with the postings for all those. And I, I try to... to offer announcements on all of my shows about forms that are coming up. So that's all the time we have. Thank you for taking the time today. Thank you for having me, and I hope everyone votes on June 5th. My guest was Katie Porter, UCI law school professor and congressional candidate in California's 45th district, which includes Irvine and the central cities of Orange County. Thank you very much. So just to pick up from that, the 45th Congressional District does include Tustin, North Tustin, Villa Park, Orange, Anaheim Hills, Laguna Hills, Lake Forest, and then parts of Elisa Viejo, parts of Laguna Niguel, Rancho Santa Margarita, and Mission Viejo. So it's always important, folks, to check the ocvoter.gov for your confirmation that you're registered. If you don't see it, then you run to the nearest clipboard that's got those forms to fill out so that you're ready. And we will have Neil Kelly on my May 1st show to talk about all of the changes going on and the kind of cybersecurity implications he talked about here actually on campus about one month ago. It was really good. So we'll be right back after a station break. And we have Michael Yasa, who has generously filled in for an emergency vacancy on my show. And with that, he's going to talk about the international 
conference. It's called International Conference on Learning and Memory to feature world-leading brain scientists. We'll be back with him in transit, setting up there up in Huntington Beach, the venue for the conference. We'll be right back. Don't go away, folks. Thanks for staying tuned. My next guests are Michael Yasa and Manuela Yasa, and they are going to fill in for a, uh, a last-minute vacancy. One of my, uh, say my guests had a family emergency, and we're going to let him take care of that. So filling in are Michael Yasa and Manuela Yasa. I'm going to let Manuela introduce her in a minute. Michael's been on the show before. He's a professor of neurobiology and behavior at the School of Biological Sciences. His research interests include learning, memory, aging, Alzheimer's disease, neuroimaging, depression, anxiety, and the hippocampus is a very special place in the head there. And so there, go, uh, Manuela can inter- Manuela, introduce yourself. You're sort of like the, the person that keeps that whole operation seamless looking. Sure. My name is Manuela. I'm Director of Outreach and Education at the Center, at the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. Very so, happy to be here. Okay, thank you. And they are in transit. They're setting up at the Huntington Beach Hotel we're going to go right into what is so darn special. It's a, a conference entitled the International Conference on Learning and Memory to Feature World's Leading Brain Scientists. And you are all going to be at the uh, Hilton at 21100 Pacific Coast Highway in Huntington Beach. And you've got a roster of very distinguished speakers with and folks whenever UCI ever has conferences just from from now on I'm just assuming it's leading edge and that we're the first lay people to hear about what's been going on back in the recesses of those researching rooms at, at labs and things like that so uh, we are so fortunate to have uh, Michael and Manuela tell us about what's being covered in this, where these leading edge professors are going to speak. And Michael will also be one of those distinguished speakers. So let's first give you a chance, Manuela and, and Michael, who's going to be your target for this conference? Uh, first, thank you for having us, uh, Claudia. I'm it's thanking great you. It's back on this show. You know, it's, it's our pleasure. The, the conference is really uh, something that we've been working on for quite some time now. It's been over a year in the planning and uh, as you said, it features some of the world's leading brain researchers, including our keynote speaker, uh, Professor Edvard Moser, who's traveling all the way from Norway uh, to give our keynote lecture, is a 2014 Nobel laureate in physiology or medicine. Wow. So uh, it really is a, is a panel of distinguished uh, neuroscientists. And, uh, you know, the one question that we get quite a bit is why a conference? What, what makes a conference so special? And uh, the conferences play a very important role, I think, in the scientific dialogue in general. And it's really the way that we can move the field forward by establishing that uh, collaborative relationship among scientists, by being able to discuss problems and come up with solutions together. Um, One of the things that we wanted to do differently for this conference, though, is uh, the audience. We wanted to make sure that it wasn't just the scientific audience. Uh, So Manuel and I worked uh, over the last year or so to secure panelists to have public panels and public features that are really focused on the lay audience. 
And one of the things that we really wanted to make sure of is that the scientific content that is discussed at this conference is really communicated well enough to the lay audience to make sure that there is that dialogue and that the public is able to inform the science as well. Well, I'm wondering, when you gave them all their assignments, because I, I know you still have to do that. They know what they're doing, but you still have to tell them what a little bit That's about right. how they're tweaking this. So are is there going to be a little bit of a uh, sort of defensive medicine practice where you all are going to be defending what investment the public sector is making in this research? Even though I know the National Institutes of Health, Fran Dr. Francis Collins, he's, he's, he's sold on the necessity of this research. He's not reigning in the support. But are you asking all speakers to say, this is, this is your time to go out and promote the heck out of what we're all doing so nothing, nothing recedes from the public sector support? Absolutely. So I think that uh, there's obviously a mission for every scientific endeavor like this yes. um, uh, to be able to support the state of the science, the, the backing of science. But it's more than just financial support. It's more than just taxpayer dollars. I think we're, and I've communicated this with you previously, I think we're at a, at a juncture right now where science and the status of science just as a mechanism that moves our society forward is at stake. And uh, we're sort of at a crossroads, and we can choose to support it and continue to embrace it and continue to evolve and develop as, as a society, as a community, or we can choose to sort of, you know, back away from it and, and fear the unknown. So part of our mission as scientists is to make that unknown just a little bit more tangible, a little bit more known to the public. Um, it's not so much defense. It's really an understanding. It's trying to pull them into the conversation, ask about the issues that are important to them, and make sure that scientists and non-scientists are working together to solve these problems. It's not the ivory tower anymore. I don't think we can still do that, continue to do that the way that it has been done for hundreds of years. I think we really have to uh, take stock of the fact that the public are just as involved in science as we are, and they are stakeholders, key stakeholders in this, and they have to be involved in the conversation because that's where the science is going to benefit eventually. Well, Michael Yasa, you want to tell us what your section is going to be doing, accomplishing, that you're speaking so at? So I'm a little bit of a, you know, the MC. I finished the opening remarks for it. I'm hosting the conference. I'm also... Okay. Um, uh, introducing our keynote speaker, Dr. Moser, and I'm kind of, you know, uh, doing a little bit here and there just to pull everybody together to try to manage the scientific aspects of this. And uh, Manuela's piece is really the, the public aspects, and I'll let her tell you a little bit more about the public features. Okay. Uh, because those are really focused on community outreach and education. Well, before we have her do that, I just want to let listeners know they're wondering now, whose Bluetooth are we listening to? And the, my guest here on Ask a Leader, who have hurriedly made themselves available. I'm so grateful to both of them. They are Michael Yassa and Manuela Yassa, and they are with the Neurobiology and Behavior School of Bi Biological Science. Michael is a researcher there, and Manuela is keeping that operation running. So, Manuela, what is the public aspect that you're bringing totally out with these people that are I'm, I'm sure they're all getting better and better. I mean, UCI Minds proof of how you, you're getting better and better at presenting accessible, fascinating kinds of material there. So um, what will you be making sure happens? Sure. So a really neat part of this conference really is that partnership between uh, the community and the scientists. And so we really want to give the community an opportunity to 
uh, really participate. So one of the things is the panels. So we have a panel on uh, neuroscience and education on Sunday that is going to be really neat. And we have a lot of teachers coming to that, principals, parts of the Department of Education here in Orange County. Uh, we also have a screening on Saturday evening of a documentary called My Love Affair with the Brain, The Life and Science of Dr. Marion Diamond, which we, and after the, the screening, we will have a panel with the filmmakers um, who will be there to answer questions and talk about, you know, what it was like to, to film, to create this film and, and work with Dr. Dim uh, Marion Diamond, who was a professor at UC Berkeley and uh, passed away last year. But this film is just incredible and incredibly inspiring to both young scientists as well as children and people of the community who, you know, are interested in science. Young girls in particular uh, will be really inspired, I, I think, by this film. All right. That's um, Saturday, as you said, on April 21st, 630. That's, that's right. And Dr. Wendy Suzuki, who uh, has been here before, uh, was here last year, is a uh, best-selling author. Um, she works on exercise in the brain. She will be hosting. She was one of Dr. Diamond's students at UC Berkeley. So she'll be hosting the oh, screening and the panel. The other thing great? that's really exciting is Saturday morning, we have a brain fest and live review for children. So this is a really unique opportunity for children to, to come to a real scientific conference and interact with scientists and hold, you know, real human brains and sheep brains and um, kind of test their brain and lots of memory tasks. But wow. also we're partnering with a journal called Frontiers for Young Minds. And uh, this journal is coming from Europe. And they have created this new idea uh, where children get to review real scientific articles. Um, so kind of wow. teaching children the scientific process. And, you know, after we do the science, what happens, right? How do we disseminate that knowledge to the world? And so when scientists you know, want to do that. They write scientific articles, and the articles go out to review. Um, and the same thing is happening here. So real scientists have written real scientific articles for 8- to 14-year-olds, and now they're going to stand in front of these 8- to 14-year-olds and talk to them about it and then have those children critique the science. So, so we have a panel of children who has been working very hard in the Brain Explorer Academy to learn about neuroscience and have reviewed these articles, and now they're going to be... Uh, oh asking the scientists questions about, you know, uh, their research, their controls, um, why didn't you do this this way, and how could you do this differently, and there's too much jargon in this article, and, you know, things like that. So really having the children inform the scientists. So many times we talk about how we want our work to be accessible to the lay audience, but we rarely ever ask the lay audience to give us feedback. Well, um, Manuel, so this is really going to be an opportunity for that. Well, Manuela, as sorry about that. Uh, th there's always mm. a delay, folks, when we've got oh, cell no phones and interviews. It's there. They make us sound so rude when we do our follow-up questions. Oh, so, no. at, in your capacity as director of outreach and education, so are you making? You must be making a, a real diligent effort to make sure everybody, uh, all the schools. I'm talking about schools that don't get all those enrichment programs are they going to be well informed about this opportunity so they can get on because i can just imagine them they're, they're working really hard yeah a so couple decades a later very... they'll be thinking of that this is the moment that was a pivotal moment for them where they 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 saw an on to science and illustrious careers but yes so that's, you're making right. that outreach very vigorous in those areas that are less privileged is what i'm thinking absolutely yes and we are bringing children into the school and actually are going to start bringing the program, the Brain Explorer Academy, uh, which now brings children into uh, UCI on Saturdays 
to work with the brain and learn about neuroscience. Uh, in the future, we're hoping to bring that out to communities. So have this program at community centers all over Orange County to reach those populations of children who can't make it to UC Irvine on a Saturday morning. Okay. Well, we know we've got it in physical sciences. They've, they've been doing this with some of their tremendous demonstrations. So I, I know you've got great resources to make the, the most the fullest, deepest impression. So that's the Brain Festival and Live Review is the April 21. That's a Saturday. Kids are out of school then. At 1030 to 1230 over there at the Hilton in Huntington Beach. So, all right. Well, that's uh, that's one way we're gonna keep uh, you're gonna keep the academics honest is the 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 young uh, unvarnished minds with the, about how you know keep yeah. Uh, what are what? Why did you do it this way? Why couldn't you've been more accessible in, in your writing that kind of thing? So, let's dive into some other of the lovely offerings at yeah. this international roster of greats in in, in neuroscience research. Certainly. And, and let me start that by saying also another question that is often asked. Yes. Why, why host such a conference at UC Irvine in particular? And I, I would be remiss to not take this opportunity to, to mention that, you know, neuroscience was born at UCI first and foremost. In 1964, really? it was really the origins of neuroscience with the birth of the very first department that is devoted systematically to the study of the brain. So the very first the Department of Neuroscience in the world was born at UCI. It was founded by James McGaw, um, who's also the founding director of the center, which I currently am privileged to direct, the Center for the Neurobiology of Learning and Memory. Thank you. And this conference is held in celebration of the 35th anniversary of that particular center, which was uh, established in 1983. So it is a momentous occasion that we're trying to celebrate, and what, you know, as, as a demonstration of UCI's prominent role in neuroscience over the last 50 years, the individuals that are coming, those world-class leaders that are coming, are all friends of the center, have either crossed paths with the center either by virtue of having trained at the center directly or with someone who trained at the center. They're sort of the extended family, and I was very uh, privileged when I sent out my invitations. You know, you normally send out a whole bunch of invitations and hope that maybe half of them will say yes. But everybody said yes, every single person. That's um, amazing. Said yes, which left us with a little bit of a quandary. We had to figure out, okay, now we have to double the size of this conference. <laughs> All but right. And then on to Huntington Beach. Have, certainly. Okay. All right. So uh, the, I think the major highlight is our keynote speaker, Dr. Edvard Moser, who will be talking about space and time in the brain and how is it that uh, we can understand um, our memories in the context of space and time. Our very own Jim McGaw will give a, uh, a yes. plenary lecture to open the, the conference. And we have lectures by other uh, known greats, uh, also at UCI, like Beth Loftus, who will talk about false memory. Okay. Um, Gary Lynch, who has spent his career looking at mechanisms of cellular memory. So how is it that an individual cell is able to strengthen its connections to build a memory? And he's really worked out a lot of these details over the years, and he's going to kind of give us a, a historical overview of everything that he's done. We also have, as a special highlight that we secured recently, a representative from the Kavli Foundation, okay. which is now actually located in Culver City, a little bit closer to us, who have been spearheading the global efforts called the Brain Initiative. And they've really been uh, the, the key uh, players uh, by the White House and the uh, Congress appointed to really be the leaders of the Brain Initiative. And most recently, in December of last year, they've announced that this is now an international effort, and they're really spearheading that effort. So we'll have a, a nice lecture by Dr. Caroline Montoho, who's a senior program officer at 
the Kavli Foundation and Director of Brain Initiatives. And she'll talk about advances in brain research, both in the U.S. and globally, and what the future looks like. So we're really looking forward to that as a highlight to kind of show us what the future of brain science looks like over the next 10, 15 years. Wow. That is phenomenal, everyone. All the friends are coming back, and, and you've got more friends. You're adding to the roster with this, these illustrious guests that are presenting, and your students that come to you on Saturdays and eventually out in the community. Well, i all too happy to have you just tell me what I need to be asking you. <laughs> <laughs> what, what you're doing, yeah, because you've been doing putting this together, as you say, for the last year. Sure. So what other, I mean, you've got, I'm sure, a whole wing of exhibitors at, that you're going to have people interacting with. You want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So we have quite a number of exhibitors. Actually, our headlining sponsor is Frontiers, and Frontiers is an open access journal. And that we really share one of the core values with them, which is about making research accessible and open to the public such that nobody ever gets hit with a paywall when they want to download an article and read it. They should okay. be able to have open and unfettered access to science. So, so we feel very strongly about our partnership with Frontiers, and they've been incredibly supportive of us from the beginning. So they are our headlining sponsor. And we've got about 20 additional sponsors and exhibitors. So it's really a fun show, and they're, they're giving out lots of giveaways. I can't give away any of the secrets. No, right no, now. no, no. You got, no, no, I'm but, not interested in no scooping. I want to entice. It's a, yeah. It's a really, really uh, fun time that I think will be had with the exhibitors. I should mention also that we were um, fortunate to get a conference grant from the National Institutes of Health that was sponsored jointly by the National Institute on Aging and the National Institute um, for Neurological Disorders and Stroke, NINDS. So that was a really nice thing to have as well. And, and the Kavli Foundation and several other foundations also were very supportive. But of course, our biggest supporter and sponsor through all this has been UC Irvine's leadership. So, uh, you know, we are one center at UCI. And as you uh, pointed to earlier, there are many centers at UCI that all have different missions and agendas. But I think it's really heartwarming when we go to UCI's administration and leadership and say, this matters, this is important, and is really critical for UCI's prominent role in neuroscience globally to be able to partner with them and get support from them. So uh, several schools were very supportive, and our Office of Research was also very, very supportive. Well, that is phenomenal. I say the obvious, and allow me folks to say the obvious every now and then, and we are talking about the all-important international conference on learning and memory featuring a Nobel researcher, uh, Dr. Mosier. And this is all happening, folks, if you're listening live. It's happening tomorrow, April 18th, and it goes through Sunday, April 22. It's at the Waterfront Beach Resort. It's a Hilton Hotel at 21100 Pacific Coast Highway in Huntington Beach. Manuela, tell us, as Director of Outreach and Education, what we need to know about how people can sign up who haven't already done so. Sure. So there's a conference website, uh, www.learnmem2018.org. Okay. And if you know, you're interested in all those of you who are on Twitter, uh, if you're interested in going and kind of catching the buzz, we're using the hashtag LearnMem2018. There's already a lot of activity on there, uh, people coming oh, from all over the world and posting their pictures on airplanes and trains and automobiles, <laughs> and uh, it's very exciting. But you can sign up. If you go to the conference website, you'll see the different components. 
um, and you can RSVP to, to come to those. But all of the community pieces are all open to the public, um, and they're free, and you really? just show up, and we look forward to seeing you. It's free, folks. You can learn, and you're, I, you're, I'm never the same after these these conferences. That Yeah, you take away so much, and you're so grateful. So, And speaking of being grateful, <laughs> I, want to, I want to thank both of you. I had, as my guest... For this segment and a rush turnaround of a notice, it's Michael Yasa, professor of neurobiology and behavior at the School of Biological Sciences and Neurology at the School of Medicine, and Manuela Yasa. She is the director of outreach and education at the center there. So I want to thank you both for putting this together, and I'm glad we had this because I thought, oh, when I got the press release, I was going to miss out, but you made it happen. Thank you, both of you, so much. And good luck. Thanks for being on the show. Okay. Take care. Thank you. So I'm going to wind up this one with a uh, next week's guests are going to be Dave Min and Kia Hamadanchi. They are both congressional candidates in the 45th District. Thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next week. Well, the shakes her head and reads aloud from the newspaper My father puts another lock on the door And reflects upon the violent times we're living in While chatting to the wife, Peter, next